the astonishing rise of Greece taken from Daniel chapter 8. And I suppose when we, when we look at the man Daniel, he's such an amazing character of faith and no doubt you, you guys have, uh, through your studies this year, you've come to really appreciate this. And we're introduced in the early chapters to a young person, Daniel, who always demonstrated his faith. A young person who was consistent, hard-working, diligent, a young person who was conscientious in everything that he did. Not sure what's going on, on my screen, sorry. Sorry, apologies. Um, but Daniel was a man that was conscientious in every, every single thing that he did. And it's an attitude that each of us can learn so much from today. And with an attitude and a work ethic like Daniel had, it was inevitable that Daniel was going to go places. He was going to climb the ranks in whatever he put his hand to and in whatever field he, he, he worked in. So much so that Daniel ends up rising to second in command of the greatest kingdom to date in history at the time. A slave who rose to second in command of the greatest global power at the time. And the powerful lesson for us today as we try to demonstrate Daniel-like characteristics in our life was Daniel's consistency and it was Daniel's faith. Through all circumstances, Daniel was consistent. And you know, it's easy to do a good job for a short period of time. That's easy. At work or at life or even in your spiritual life. It's easy to do a good job for a short period of time, but it's even harder to do a good job for a consistent long period of time. If you're like me, young people, you struggle at times with consistency because we tend at times to focus on the outcome more than the process. We focus on the outcome more than the process. We look to the end of the journey rather than embracing and enjoying the struggle of the journey. Not so much Daniel. His eyes were fixed, no doubt, on the prize at the end of his, at the end of his life, the end of the race, no doubt but his feet were fixed firmly on the ground. You may be familiar with this guy, Dwayne Johnson. He said, he summed up consistency this way. He said, success isn't always about greatness, it's about consistency. Consistent hard work leads to success. Greatness will come. Daniel Young People was a 24 hour a day follower of Christ, no matter day or night, no matter good times or bad times or sad times, rich times or poor times, Daniel maintained a steady, consistent faith in his God. And this is a lesson that we all can take with us moving forward in our lives. And for his consistency, Daniel was rewarded in a vision. And he was rewarded with a really incredible insight that we've come to discuss this afternoon, an insight which no one else was privileged to receive in some amazing visions and one that we want to explore uh, together. So Daniel and Daniel chapter 8, this, the theme of the astonishing rise of Greece. And we begin at the beginning of chapter 8, verse 1. We read, In the third year of the reign of Belteshazzar, a vision appeared unto me, even unto Daniel, after that which appeared unto me at the first. And I saw in a vision... And it came to pass, when I saw that I was at Shushan in the palace, which is in the province of Elam, 
and I saw in a vision and I was by the river Ulai. So this is in the third year of the reign of Belteshazzar. Daniel was given, by, given a vision by God, a powerful vision. Verses 3 to 4, we're introduced to this vision and we're introduced to an animal, a ram. And this animal has two horns. We read, Then I lifted up mine eyes and I saw, and behold, there stood before the river a ram which had two horns. And the two horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher came up last. I saw the ram pushing westward and northward and southward so that no beast might stand before him. Neither was there any that could deliver out of his hand. But he did according to his will and he became great. So this ram we see, it's a great ram. It's a ram with two hordes and it's pushing throughout all the world. It's pushing north, south, east and west and it's expanding and it's getting stronger and stronger. And no one could overpower this ram. This, power, this ram did whatever he wanted to do. No one could tell this ram what to do. And as Daniel's seeing this vision, he's watching this ram expanding and, and pushing. Suddenly another animal appears on the scene. A, a quicker animal, an animal that's more youthful, an animal that's sprightly, it's vibrant, it's driven. And this animal seems to appear out of nowhere and it appears rapidly and, and with great speed. It's... it's it's, it's a very fast animal. Daniel 8 verse 5. And as I was considering, behold, an he-goat came out from the west on the face of the whole earth, and it touched not the ground. And the goat had a notable horn between his eyes. And he came to the ram that had two horns, which I had seen standing before the river, and ran up to him in the fury of his power. And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him, and smote the ram, and brake his two horns, and there was no power in the ram to stand before him. But he cast him down to the ground, and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. How many of you young people find prophecy difficult? Hands up, how many of you find prophecy difficult? Because I, I find prophecy quite difficult. Most of your hands are going up. All right. You know, some of the books of the Bible are tough to look at. You know, Zechariah, for example, is a tough book. Isaiah is a tough book. Daniel is a tough book. I'm sure all of us find it easier to read a couple of Psalms or a couple of nice little sections in the Proverbs or something like that easier than, say, a portion in Revelation. A character study is a lot easier. My point at the start of the talk is a lot easier than looking at the vials of revelation, for example, or the beasts, for example. It's understandable. But young people, from God's perspective, I want us to think of this from God's perspective when we think about difficult sections of the Bible that are challenging. From God's perspective, this is offensive to him. It's offensive to God for us to ignore large portions of his letters to us. God would find offence in discounting large chapters of the book that he wrote for us and his message to us, especially to us that are living as, as, we, as we know in these latter days. So it's good as a group that you've come to the book of Daniel, a mix of some of the lighter stuff but also some of the heavier stuff, the milk and the meat, so to speak. And if there was ever a prophecy that was going to get us excited about the Bible, excited to look at, it's, it's this one. Because this prophecy, quite simply, it explains itself. You may be wondering what these two animals represent. 
In other visions throughout the Bible, this is harder to decipher, but this prophecy, this prophecy tells us exactly who these two animals are and exactly what these two animals represent. And then it's up to us young people to go away, once we've read the prophecy, to go away and to investigate the history, to actually see if the Bible's true. There's no use believing something just because your parents tell you and there's no point in you believing something just because I'm standing up here telling you today. You need to prove it to yourself. Make sure that you're convinced. Look at the history and, and see if the Bible's true. Put it to the test. You know, prophecy is hard. It's, it's, it is hard. It's not unusual to find prophecy hard. Daniel himself, with as high a calibre of spiritual uh, knowledge that he had, he needed somebody to actually explain to him this, this message as well. So prove it. That's the challenge today, and I bet you you're going to be amazed with the accuracy of this prophecy, and hopefully we can come to see that a little bit today together. I want us to come to verse 15 of chapter 8. Verse 15, it came to pass when I, even Daniel, had seen the vision and sought for the meaning, then behold, there stood before me as the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Ulai, which called and said, Gabriel, make this man understand this vision. And he said, Behold, I'll make thee know what shall be in the last end of the indignation, for at the time appointed the end shall be. The ram which thou sawest, having two horns, are the kings of Media and Persia. That makes sense, two horns. And the rough goat is the king of Grecia. And the great horn that is between his eyes is its first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up for it, four kingdoms shall stand out of the nation, but not in his power. So young people, quite simply, we have two kingdoms spoken of here. Two kingdoms represented, as we said, in two animals. A ram representing the kingdom of the Medes and the Persians, and an he-goat representing the nation of Greece. So to get back into some of the history, to actually see if the Bible is correct, to put it to the test, we need to go all the way back to the years 359 to 336 BC. And I want to introduce you to a man called Philip II of Macedon. Philip II of Macedon. History, it mainly remembers this guy as being the father of Alexander the Great, but Philip II was an amazing man in his own right. He was driven, he was determined, and he was a leader, just like his son. And Philip II of Macedon began his reign at age 23. Now, a few of you are probably 23 years old, I would imagine. That's a fairly young age to start your reign. And at the time that Philip came to power in Macedonia, Greece itself was a pretty weak and backward sort of country. And Philip set about to transform Macedonia into a formidable uh, military might. And the army of Macedon, or Ma the army of Macedonia, became one of the greatest military forces in the ancient world. However, up to this point in time, before Philip II had come to the throne, they'd been regarded as second rate. However, Philip was able to drill his men. He was able regularly, he, he ensured unity and ensured cohesion in the ranks of his military. And through demanding excellence from his soldiers in a remarkably short time, that led to the creation of one of the finest military machines that the world had ever seen. Philip was a bit revolutionary when it came to the latest developments in warfare. He deployed the traditional Greek phalanx, which is a division of infantry 
and each of the members of the phalanx held a six-foot-long two-handed pike. And essentially it formed into a huge porcupine movement that was able to charge and to run at enemies. The Macedonian army under Philip, it perfected coordination of its troop types. They had the heavy infantry phalanx, which I've just said. They've got skirmish infantry. They had archers. They had light cavalry. They had heavy cavalry and they had siege engines. Revolutionary at the time. And they were all deployed in battle together, coordinated well. Each group, each group used its own advantage to get to the end cause. They were a unified army. And uh, interestingly, from your studies of Daniel 2, this Greek army of King Philip II of Macedon carried bronze shields. Bronze had never been used before. But this Greek army was kitted out with bronze shields. Further proof from Daniel chapter 2. So Philip II, he subdued all the territories around Macedonia and the majority of Greece. And he used force, he used warfare, he used threats, he used bribes all in order to unify Greece. The Greece at the time was in a lot of different sections. There was the Spartans, there was the Athenians, the Thebians. There was lots of different areas in Greece and it was the work of Philip II, Alexander's father, ultimately at a congress that was held in Corinth, ended up unifying Greece as one country. Philip II, as much as he was a busy man, he did have time to be married seven times. Unfortunately, he only had the two children, and one of those was Alexander. So in 336, Philip II was assassinated. And he was assassinated by his former friend and bodyguard at the age of just 46 years old. Which, with his father now dead, Alexander the Great came to the throne at the age of 21. Now, 21 is, I'm sure, lots of you are 21. Now, that is even younger to start your rule. And he, he, the path was now clear for Alexander to take over from his father, Philip II of Macedon. But after, these, after the death of Philip II, a lot of the regions of Greece rose up against Alexander and they challenged his leadership. Often that can occur. And Alexander had to assert his authority at that age of 21. A main revolt came from the area of Thebes. They revolted against Alexander. And Alexander was, as becomes a characteristic that we're going to see more of this afternoon, very, very quickly, he sets about to stamp out this revolt. He marches 480 kilometres in just two, two weeks. And the Thebians were so surprised to see Alexander that they couldn't even believe that it was him coming. He'd marched that far in that short amount of time. He was rapid. Alexander was a man on a mission. He was quick. Such was the speed and the ferocity of the attack that they didn't even think it was him. And it was after he hit this battle, this battle of Thebes, that the rest of Greece surrendered and unified under Alexander and, and elected him as their king. As I said, Alexander was a man in a hurry. He was, he was quick, he was lightning fast. His attacks and the ferocity of his attacks, he came on the enemy without them even thinking and often catching the enemy completely by surprise. That was, his, that was his trademark. Alexander was known for his pace. He was known for his drive, his determination. And we'd expect no less from him with the description that was given to us in Daniel chapter 8, verse 5. He's described as a goat whose feet 
touch not the ground. Such was the speed of Alexander the Great's conquests. And in his sights was the kingdom of Persia. That was his target. That's where he wanted to go. The kingdom that had ruled over his people, the kingdom that had ruled over the world, the world which Alexander really wanted for himself. That was his mission. His eyes were fixed west on Persia, not on Greece. You know, young people, in our lives, hindsight can be a wonderful thing. And especially when thinking of God's providence in our lives, often, often at the time of events, things may not make sense. And odd things happen that we sometimes question and we think, well, why did that happen? That was a little bit unusual. But generally, God is in control. He's got a plan. And he's in control of the events of our lives. And he was very much in control of the events of Alexander's life. I want us to think about how hard these angels must have been working, trying to get all these, all these things in place for Alexander the, to rise to power. They would have been working overtime in order to bring these events to pass of Daniel chapter 8, in line with the vision that God had given Daniel. Because we're at the point in history now that Alexander, he's about to cross the Hellespont or the Dardanelles. It's an area of water, a section of water today in the Aegean Sea. It's a small gap between, between Greece and Asia. The Persians on the other side of the sea had amassed a army of about ten to 20,000 cavalry and about five to 20,000 infantry in the town of Zalia. And interestingly, in the Persian army, in their force, there was a Greek mercenary, and his name was Memnon, called Memnon of Rhodes. And he was a, consul he was a consultant to the Persian army, a bit of a mercenary. And Memnon was a pretty smart guy. He, he knew how to uh, defeat Greece. He had some good ideas, obviously. He was Greek, he was a smart man. And he advised the Persians that the best way, the best way to hinder and overthrow Alexander would have been to retreat and then burn and destroy all the crops in the land. Now his theory was to destroy all the land and make it waste. And he called this theory, it's called the scorched earth theory. Now essentially, to make the land waste and to make Alexander and his army starve for not having any food. They become weak with the journey and the marching in the distance and eventually have to turn back. So it was a good theory. It made perfect sense. And it was likely the correct theory. However, the Persian leaders didn't trust Memnon in this case. They were, they were concerned about his Greek heritage, and, he didn't think, and they didn't think that at this point his advice was sound. And also they were too proud to torch their own ground. They were not going to do that and refused. So they came up with this other tactic. There, was, there were two, two objectives. First, they would try to force... Alexander to a position of choosing before he could continue inland and second the Persian hoped to be able to be in a defensive position that would minimise Alexander's advantage in battle and their infantry. So the, the Persians advanced from Zalea to this river called the Granicus River and they set up in position there. The Persians chose a river. Remember what we said, we're going to try to prove the Bible. They chose a river. So if the Persian commander had heeded the words of Memnon, the sound advice of Memnon, there would be no river. If the Persian commanders had heeded the warning to fall back, burn the crops, there would be no river. If the Persians were listening to the sound advice of Memnon, there would be no river at all. As I said, those angels were working hard, young people. 
over time was going into setting this up. Fair moving of the chess pieces by God's messengers, the angels. And God tells us words today to keep us, God tells us words to keep in mind today and, and in coming days for us. He says in Isaiah 46 verse 9, Remember the former things of old, for I am God. There is none else. I am God and there is none like me. Declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient time the things that are not yet done, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do my pleasure. God simply in a vision to Daniel, said that a ram and an he-goat would both stand at a river. And he simply tells us in verse 4 that the ram or Persia would become great. Persia would push throughout the whole world. It would be so great that no one could stand in their way until, until a he-goat or the Greeks came from the west at rapid speed and pace with huge determination, with a notable single horn as a leader at the helm in Alexander the Great. And he had charged at the ram in fury in verse 6 at a river. The Persian army formed up behind the river, which was shallow but 60 feet wide with steep banks. Their front line was a wall of cavalry about 10,000 horsemen from across the empire. Medes and Hyrcanians from modern Iran, Bactrians from Afghanistan, and Paphlagonians from Turkey's Black Sea coast. Behind, in reserve, were the infantry, several thousand Greek mercenaries, a common sight in Persian armies at this time. These men fought for Persian gold, and were armed with the round shield and short spear of hoplites. The Persians may have been unsure if they could trust these men in combat against fellow Greeks, and so placed them at the rear. Alexander, determined to attack and destroy this Persian force before it could retreat, raced to the Granicus with his best troops. On his left wing, he posted Thessalian, Greek and Thracian cavalry under Parmenian's command. In the centre were the massed spears of the phalanx, its six divisions commanded by Perdiccas, Koinos, Amintas, Philip, Meliager and Crateros. On the right, Alexander himself, with the companion cavalry under Philotas, as well as the elite hypaspists, the Agrianis javelin throwers, and the archers. Alexander, with 13,000 infantry and 5,000 cavalry in all, was probably slightly outnumbered. But ignoring advice to wait until dawn to cross the river, he ordered an immediate assault. He sent a squadron of companion cavalry to ford the river, followed by a regiment of hypaspists and the Paeonian light cavalry. Alexander, calling on his men to show their courage, then led his right wing across the river. As they reached the middle of the river, the Greeks came under a hail of javelins, darts and arrows from the Persian line. Those that made it to the far bank were immediately charged by the Persian cavalry.
Alexander was in the thick of the fighting. He attacked where the whole mass of their cavalry and leaders were stationed. Around him, a desperate conflict raged. Horses were jammed against horses, and men against men. The Macedonians striving to drive the Persians away from the riverbank. The Persians determined to prevent them crossing, and to push them back into the river. Alexander's attack seemed reckless, but he was buying time for the rest of his army to cross the river, including the irresistible Macedonian phalanx. Then, suddenly, Alexander was fighting for his life, charged by two Persian nobles. Roissasis rode up to Alexander and struck him on the head with his sword, breaking off a piece of his helmet. But the helmet broke the force of the blow, and Alexander struck him down with his lance. Then, from behind, Spithridates raised his sword against the king, but Black Clytus, son of Dropidus, anticipated his blow, struck his arm, and cut it off, sword and all. Now the Greek army was across the river, and the Persian cavalry faced a wall of Macedonian spears. Most turned and fled. The speed and shock of Alexander's attack meant Persia's Greek mercenaries hadn't even had time to join the battle. Alexander, in a blood rage, or possibly regarding these Greeks as traitors, ignored their appeals for mercy. The mercenaries were surrounded on all sides, and massacred. I was asked to cover uh, the three battles, three major battles uh, of Alexander. And I thought instead of me just droning on up here, I'll, I'll show you three videos. Hopefully it keeps you awake, for one. But he should have he listened to the Greek guy. He should have, they should have listened to the Greek guy and, and, and retreated, burned the fields and would have saved their army. But you know what, young people? God's message and God's prophecy was not for this to occur. God's message is clear. The prophecy is clear. It's accurate. It's definitive. And for some of you that are sitting here today perhaps questioning whether the Bible is real or whether this is even all worth it, hopefully this is some of the proof that God's word is true and it's accurate. We've seen it in Daniel chapter 8 and we've looked at history and we can see it starting to, to come to pass. But the detail from the direction to the pace, to the single horn, the single leader, to the location, all accurate to the T. And it gives us great confidence in our God and in his message and in his plan for us also. So from the Battle of Granicus, or the Granicus River, the Greeks continued to make inroads into the Persian territory. And if we read in Daniel 8, verse 7, we see some very interesting language that is used. In Daniel 8, 7, And I saw him come close unto the ram, and he was moved with choler against him. 
and he smote the ram and brake his two horns. And there was no power in the ram to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and stamped upon him, and there was none that could deliver the ram out of his hand. Now the words here, moved with collar, I had to look it up because I didn't know what it meant either. The word collar means to be furious, vexed, sorely grieved, bitter. And there seems to be a bit of a distinct change in the motive behind Alexander's mission, a mission which was based initially on Greek might and rule and pride to a mission now that was one that was fueled out of hate, anger and bitterness. Between the Battle of Granicus and the second major battle, the Battle of Issus, that we're going to look at shortly, there was an incident that was very brutal. It was hurtful to Alexander and it really changed the game for him because Alexander had chosen to leave a lot of his wounded from the Battle of Granicus in a town of Issus. And he believed this city to be safe while he went off in search of Darius and the rest of the Persian army. So he left them in the town of Issus. Well, Darius managed to come to Issus. Alexander didn't find him. And Darius proceeded to slay and brutally torture and kill all the Greek wounded that were left in that city. Being moved with bitterness, anger, being absolutely furious... Alexander marched onto the city of Issus. 18 months had passed since Alexander's army crossed the Hellespont and invaded the Persian Empire. Now Alexander led his men into Cilicia and was soon poised to cross the Nur Mountains into Syria. But then the main Persian army, led by King Darius III himself, emerged behind the Greek army to the north. Darius was determined to trap and destroy Alexander's army, which he outnumbered almost two to one. So he blocked Alexander's only escape route by moving his army to the coastal plain near Issus, just six miles wide from mountains to sea. The narrow battlefield would force Alexander to fight, but it also prevented Darius exploiting his huge numerical advantage. His army, by some estimates, was up to a hundred thousand strong and contained some of the finest soldiers in his vast empire, including ten thousand of his own household troops, known as the Immortals. His best cavalry were massed on his right towards the sea, where the ground was better for horses. His best infantry, his Greek mercenary hoplites, formed the centre. Persian infantry formed his left wing. Alexander deployed his own army for battle, once again entrusting his left wing, nearest the sea, to Parmenion with the Greek cavalry and infantry. In the centre, as always, was the Macedonian phalanx. Alexander positioned himself and his best troops on the right wing, toward the mountain slopes. His elite Agriane javelin throwers, his archers, and behind them the Hypaspists and the companion cavalry. 
when Alexander saw the strength of the Persian cavalry facing Parmenion on the left. He moved across his Thessalian cavalry to reinforce him. Despite his overwhelming numbers, Darius held his position behind a small river, the Pinarus, and waited for Alexander to attack. He didn't have to wait long. Alexander called out to his men, urging them to fight bravely, picking out some by name. Then, at the head of his army's right wing, he charged. Once again, the speed and shock of the Macedonian advance sent the enemy reeling back. But in the centre of the battlefield, the Macedonian phalanx was in trouble. In its effort to keep up with Alexander, its formation had become disordered. Now, in fierce fighting with Darius's Greek mercenaries, the phalanx was slowly being driven back. Alexander, seeing the danger, regrouped and led the companions in a headlong charge straight at the Persian centre. The Greek mercenaries threatened on their flank were soon in disarray, and the Macedonian phalanx was able to resume its advance. Alexander fought his way towards the great king Darius himself. Rather than face this apparently mad and fearless Macedonian king, Darius fled the battlefield in his royal chariot. Meanwhile, the Macedonian left wing under Parmenion was in a desperate fight against the best of the Persian cavalry. If the Persians could break through here, they could envelop Alexander's army and snatch victory from the jaws of defeat. But Parmenion and his troops fought doggedly, and continued to hold the Persians at bay. As the news that Darius had fled spread among his troops, they abandoned the fight, and tried to save themselves. You know, this Battle of Issus was no doubt a miracle. No doubt about it. Purely unnatural victory that Alexander was able to make happen. Much like some of the modern battles that Israel has been faced with in their recent history. The, Alexander, as we saw, was outnumbered two to one. And yet Alexander, in his fierce determination, his speed, which we saw and, and was reiterated in that video, the speed and the might and the surprise managed to overthrow the Persians at, at Issus. Darius flees the battle, as we just saw, and the Persians are in retreat. And in this battle, Alexander manages to take captive Darius's wife, his mother, and his children. And he actually treats them quite well, and he spares their life, and he takes them into his own family. Alexander then travels down the coast of the Mediterranean, on, on, onwards in his conquest. He takes Sidon, and he takes Tyre. And if you've got some time in this coming week, or whenever... Have a look at this Battle of Tyre, when he builds a causeway um, prophesied in the book of Ezekiel. He builds a causeway across, across the city 
and it takes him seven months to overthrow Tyre. And then he marches on to Jerusalem. I wasn't going to cover this much, but I had to because it's quite remarkable when he comes to Jerusalem. He marched on Jerusalem with every intention of overthrowing Jerusalem as well. And the high priest in Jerusalem hears that Alexander was coming and he goes out to meet Alexander to try to broker peace and hopes to avoid war. And the amazing part for us is that Alexander, when he sees this high priest, he kneels down and he worships the high priest. And you may think, what's all that about? That's a bit unusual. Yes, it is. It's completely unusual. Before Alexander left on his conquest, before he left Greece, apparently he had this vision and he saw this high priest in the vision. And the high priest told him that he would one day conquer the whole of Persia. And so when he sees this high priest coming out of the city of Jerusalem, he kneels down in front of him and he worships and he spares the city and he's, and he's actually taken in and looked after at the city. That's amazing. That's another proof of God's amazing prophecy. More interesting than that is when he comes into the city, and this is a little bit in dispute, but the, the historian Josephus actually says this. He says this, uh, the following. He says, when the book of Daniel was showed to him, as in Alexander, when the book of Daniel was showed to him, wherein Daniel declared that one of the Greeks should destroy the army of the Persians, Alexander supposed that himself was the person intended, and then he was glad. Now, we don't know if that's for certain, but that's what the historian Josephus writes. So our God is amazing, young people. And I hope you're starting to see this, some of the accuracy of the detail and the way that Jerusalem was spared. This wasn't the time for Jerusalem to be destroyed. And Alexander then proceeds all the way down into Egypt where the Persian governor of Egypt surrenders to him. He takes Egypt. He goes up to Alexandria, renames the city in his own honour goes down to Memphis, he's crowned Pharaoh in Memphis, and then he travels back to Tyre. And it was in Tyre that Alexander receives the letter from Darius. Darius offers, his, offers him his daughter, he offers him a fortune in gold, and he offers him half of his kingdom in exchange for peace. Now, what we've started to learn is Alexander wasn't the sort of guy to negotiate. And so he promptly turns down the offer from Darius and he heads into another battle. Having subdued Persian lands west of the Euphrates River, he now headed east into the empire's heartlands, seeking a final showdown with the Persian king, Darius III. Receiving news that a great Persian army led by Darius had assembled at Gaugamela, near modern Mosul in Iraq, he made straight for it. This was Darius's last chance to stop Alexander, and Alexander's chance to smash Persian power once and for all. Darius had chosen to fight on open ground, where his advantage in numbers would be more telling. His soldiers had also worked hard to clear and flatten the terrain, to make it suitable for Persian war chariots. By modern estimates, the Persian army was between 50 and 80,000 strong, and made up of contingents from across the empire. 
infantry from Syria and Babylonia. Cavalry from Armenia, India and Central Asia. Up to 200 scythed chariots. Even a handful of war elephants. Alexander's army was smaller and may have been outnumbered by as much as two to one. He deployed his units in their usual formation. On the left flank, Thracian and Thessalian cavalry, commanded by Parmenion. In the centre, the Macedonian veterans of the phalanx, each armed with their 18-foot Sarissa pike. On the right flank, Alexander with his elite cavalry, the Companions, and his best infantry, the Hypaspists. These were the units with which Alexander planned to launch his main attack. Greek hoplites formed a second line and supported both wings, which were angled back to guard against encirclement by the Persians. began when Alexander led his wing out to the right, a move that took the Persians by surprise. Could Alexander really be trying to encircle their huge army? The Persians mirrored his movement, taking troops away from their centre to outflank Alexander, and prevent him leaving the area they'd cleared for the Persian chariots. But Alexander's unusual manoeuvre was a trap, to entice the Persians to weaken their centre. When he saw that it had worked, he ordered his Greek cavalry to charge, to keep the Persians fixed in position. A giant cavalry battle developed on the right wing. Darius, meanwhile, judging this to be the decisive moment, unleashed his chariots. Expert Agrianes javelin throwers took out horses and crews, while the Greek infantry opened lanes, allowing the chariots to pass harmlessly through. Now Alexander led his companion cavalry and parts of the Macedonian phalanx in a headlong charge straight at the weakened Persian centre, fighting his way towards Darius himself. The sudden ferocity of Alexander's assault threw the Persians into panic. The centre of the army broke and ran, King Darius himself leading the rout. But Alexander's left wing was in serious trouble. Parmenion, facing a huge onslaught by Persian cavalry, was virtually surrounded. Indian and Scythian horsemen had even ridden through a gap in the Greek line. But rather than wheeling and attacking the Greeks from behind, they'd carried straight on to loot their camp. Parmenion sent a desperate appeal to Alexander for help. 
king abandoned his pursuit of Darius, regrouped and charged the Persian right wing. It was the hardest and bloodiest fighting of the battle, claiming the lives of 60 of Alexander's companions. As news of Darius's flight spread across the battlefield, the last Persian horseman turned and fled. The Battle of Gaugamela was a stunning and complete victory for Alexander. According to ancient sources, he lost just a few hundred men, while the Persians lost thousands. Probably a good point for us just to stop and to see what we've seen so far. It's very easy for us to watch these movies. It's very easy for us to read the history and see the detail that is given for us and think, well, yes, Greece overthrew Persia. The Bible said it would happen. Okay, it happened. But we need to stop and think how privileged that we all are sitting here today. We've seen the history that's been fulfilled. And we've seen from history that the events of Daniel chapter 8 have come to pass. That is astonishing. It is absolutely unbelievable. And the advantage that we have over that of Daniel is that we've actually been able to see these events unfold. We haven't just seen the vision, but we've seen the detail, and we've seen the historical detail of this vision being fulfilled. So it's good for us to pause and just consider how privileged that we are as a people. We truly are very privileged to see this in its fulfilment. Well, Alexander, he continues west. Running out of time, he continues west. He pursues Darius, and Darius is assassinated by one of his own men in Bessus. And he, after this, he heads further west, having killed Darius, and he ultimately comes to India. Such a huge achievement for a man at 32 years of age. In 13 short years, Alexander had amassed the largest empire that the world had ever seen, from Greece all the way to India. His speed and his ferocity were never before seen at just 32 years of age, at the peak of his physical power, at the top of his game, the leader of the Grecian army, the leader of the world. 32. King of the world. At 32 years of age, Alexander the Great was struck down dead in the city of Babylon. He suffered 12 days of excruciating suffering and he ultimately succumbed. It's a very unusual death, and no one really knows how or why Alexander died. Why at the peak of Alexander's power, why at the peak of his power was this man's life brought to an end? One of the most recognisable personalities that the world has ever seen, cut down in his prime. Why? Daniel 8, verse 8. Therefore the great horn... Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Quite simply, young people, this was God's plan. This was set in order, it was meticulously organised, it was prophesied, sealed and delivered to Daniel in a vision. For Daniel, this would have not been a surprise had he been alive and seen this occur. And how great is our God, the accuracy of this prophecy I'm sure you all had it covered in Daniel chapter 4, verse 17. This matter is by the decree of the watchers and the demand by the holy word 
by the word of the holy ones to the intent that the living must know that the most high rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomsoever he will setting up over at the basis of men that the living may know that's me and you that's not Daniel, that's not Abraham, that's not David, Esther, any of, the, any of the greats of the Bible. That's us, that's each one of us here today, the living, that the living may know. That each one of us here today can look at this vision, that we can compare this vision to the historical record and we can see that our God is in control. To sit here this afternoon and to be amazed at the history that our, our God was able to organise in 13 short years the whole world affairs that in 13 years our God was able to usher in a whole new world power. In 13 years God was able to raise into power a man called Alexander. This man would head west, hunt and destroy the greatest power at the time to date and usher in a new world dynasty. And all of us here this afternoon, we sit here in a world of frustration and fear. We sit here in a world of uncertainty trouble, hurt and anxiety. And in the last 18 months, our God has turned our world upside down. Our world's been turned upside down by, in the biggest way since World War II, young people. We've seen world events that Daniel would have loved to see. But through all of this, we sit here this afternoon and we know that our God rules in the kingdom of men. We sit here in full confidence and peace, knowing that our God is in control. That's comforting. That through the uncertainties of life, no matter what we go through, no matter our personal struggles, our situations, the same God that rearranged world events in 13 short years in Alexander's time is the same God who has turned the world upside down in the times of Alexander and is the same God in the book of Isaiah who says he has graven us into the very palms of his hands. You know, Alexander the Great, young people, was cut down in his prime, at the very peak of his individual powers. And there's a very relevant lesson for each of us sitting here this afternoon. See, most of you are setting out on your life journey. For some of you, you're completing your final years at school and thoughts, no doubt, are turning to your ideal career. For some of you, you are here in tertiary education, learning and studying for your chosen field of employment. For some of you here today, you are in your first job and you're embracing the challenges and the enjoyments that this brings. I've no doubt that some of you are brilliant. Some of you are clever. Some of you will become entrepreneurs. You'll become lead in your industries. You'll become leaders in your field. Some of you may even discover something that no one has ever discovered before. Some of you will become very wealthy. Some of you perhaps will become a large employer of people. Just like Alexander, so too are each of you on your own journey. You're discovering your own journey of discovery. You're discovering who you are. You're discovering your interests. You're discovering your pursuits. You're discovering new freedoms. You are possibly experimenting. I have no doubt I've been there too. And just like Alexander chose to push the boundaries of his kingdom, so too you are at times also pushing the boundaries of your kingdom or the boundaries of your parents perhaps or pushing the boundaries of society perhaps. 
You're on a journey of exploration. As humans, this is what we naturally want to do. Make wise choices, young people. In your journey of exploration and your journey of discovery, in your young years, make sound and wise choices. For Alexander the Great, I'm sure he had a vision of where he was going, of arriving back into his native Macedonia, victorious, a hero, to live out his life as a god in Greece. And this was all torn away from him at the age of 32. As a community, we have lost young people your age. It is sad, it's extremely sad, but we are not immune to these things. I suppose my simple message to you today from the life of Alexander is those famous words of Ecclesiastes chapter 12, verse 1. Remember now thy creator in the days of thy youth. The New Living Translation says, don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Sure, pursue excellence, become leaders, but do it like a Daniel who from a slave rose to greatness without losing sight of where he came from or what his priorities really were. Do it like a Daniel. Be a 24-hour follower of God and make wise choices. Because just like Alexander, we don't know when our time is up. So back to the history. Alexander dies without leaving a clear air, and so the empire of Greece is oddly divided among his four four generals. Four generals take control, which is really strange. It's odd. And it's not, there's not one ruler that replaced him, but four. And it doesn't really work having four captains on a football team or, or joint captains on a football team, let alone in a nation. And this is what happened. The four rulers of this empire, they argued amongst themselves. They fought. They didn't get on. And they spent a lot of time fighting against each other. And the constant fighting caused the empire to weaken culturally and, and militarily, ultimately falling to the might of Rome. Why though four generals? Daniel 8 verse 8. Therefore the he-goat waxed very great, and when he was strong, the great horn was broken, and for it came up four notable ones toward the four winds of heaven. If we read on the explanation of the vision, further details are given in verse 21. The rough goat is the king of Grecia, and the great horn that is between his eyes is the first king. Now that being broken, whereas four stood up, four, four kingdoms shall stand up out of the nation, but not in his power. On the screen, we've got the four regions or the nations that sort of came from Alexander's death. Four would stand in the place of one, but not in the same power. And that is straight from Daniel, and it's backed up by history. It's really quite remarkable and for me this gives me a huge amount of confidence in our Bible that we know it to be true. That to the letter history has proved the vision that God gave Daniel. Well as we know Rome ended up historically overthrowing the nation of Greece and from your consideration of Daniel 2 you'd know that the iron of Rome continues down to the feet of iron and clay which is the stone power that Christ is ultimately going to war against. This Roman power of verse 23 as a king of fierce countenance is described in verse 23 as a king of fierce countenance. This Roman thinking, young people, has continued for all time. This Roman influence, as we have said, extends the period of our time today, the feet of iron and clay, this system of Roman religion. The Catholic Church setting itself up as the mother of all churches, a system and a religion that God hates a system to which we need to be wary and conscious of. 
This system has stood the test of time and has continued influencing, brutalising, destroying, lying and manipulating and will ultimately be combined with the might of the Russian army to wage war on God's people. Daniel 8 verse 25 And through his policy also he shall cause craft to prosper in his hand and he shall magnify himself in his heart and by peace shall destroy many. He shall also stand up against the prince of princes but he shall be broken without hand. I think for us here today there's a lesson young people in the way that the Grecian Empire was overthrown. I began our talk this afternoon by commenting on the view that I have standing up here in front of you, in front of you all here. And it's a great privilege because I look out and I can see the future of our empire. And it's a great privilege, the future of our Christadelphian empire, and the future of God's people, God's empire. And each one of you are conquerors. Each one of you are leaders. Each one of you here today has the power to influence those around you for good or bad. Your friends, your families, your girlfriend, your boyfriend, each of you have been handed the keys to God's empire. Each of you has been called to preserve God's empire. You all have a responsibility to preserve God's heritage. You are custodians of his hope. You are his future. And we live today in a very divided world. Social media has had a part to play in this where opinions are divided and, and divisions are broadened on political and social lines. And as a community, young people, we're not immune to division. See, the reason the Grecian Empire was overthrown was a lack of strong leadership and infighting for power and authority. An old World War II saying for America was, united we stand, divided we fall. How true this is for us today. That division and disunity ultimately cost the Grecian Empire its power, and this is not a new concept. Paul cautioned the Corinthians of this when he said in 1 Corinthians 11 that he suspected that there was divisions among them, and he partly believed it. In order for us to preserve the heritage of God, for, all, for you all here to be leaders, conquerors, defenders of God's empire, we need to remain united. We all need to stand together and not allow infighting and struggles for power to divide us. See, when the Empire of Greece was on the rule, under the rulership of one man, the Empire was strong, it was fearless. The Empire of Greece was united. Alexander himself actually sensed that one day the Romans would end up overtaking his empire and he said a very interesting thing relevant to our last point. He said a very famous statement when referencing Rome. He said, I'm not afraid of an army of lions led by a sheep. I'm afraid of an army of sheep led by a lion. And as a community, young people, we don't have rulers among us. We don't have kings. We don't have priests. We don't have bishops or generals. We have one leader, and that one leader is Christ. We have one shepherd, Christ, and we are his sheep, and he is our lion. 
Revelation 5 verse 5, one of the elders said unto me, Weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered. We are at our strongest when we are united together under our leader Christ. We are not an army of lions led by a sheep. We are a group of sheep that are led by a lion. So what of our lion leader? What of the future king of the world? You know, this year you've been considering the theme of the tale of two kingdoms. The kingdom of men versus the kingdom of God. And today we've paused to consider the kingdom of Greece and that of Alexander the Great. A mighty man, a man full of pride, a man full of self-confidence, a man whose mission was to conquer the world, a man who tamed a black horse, which no one else could, called Bucephalus. A man whose sole aim was to conquer the world. A man who wanted to make of himself a name and to be remembered. A man who was born to royalty. A man who was trained by one of the greatest minds ever in the history of mankind in Aristotle. A man who achieved greatness for a period. A man whose life was cut short prematurely at just 32 years of age. And we think of our leader, our lion leader, our shepherd of the kingdom of God, a humble man, a carpenter, a man who had no formal education, a man who was born to an unmarried woman, a man whose sole mission was to conquer himself, a man who Zachariah said rode a donkey, Zechariah 9, Behold, thy king cometh unto them, unto thee. He is just and having salvation. He's lowly and he's riding on an ass. A man who came to build a family of which you and me are part. And a man who at 33 years of age, his life was also cut short. A man that has achieved greatness for eternity. This young people is the tale of two kingdoms. And we sit here today as God's future and the choices are ours. On whose side do we choose? Are we an army of lions that are going to be led by a sheep? Or are we an army of sheep that are going to be led by a lion? Don't let the excitement of youth cause you to forget your creator. Make wise choices. Young people, I believe that this has a relevant and a timely message for us living in as, I think Brad explained, as we are in the last days. We've had it showed to us already tonight that God is in total control of every historical event. And he's fulfilling his will and his purpose in everything that his plans have been made to do from the beginning of time. And the message from Daniel chapter 9 is no different. And yet, what this chapter does, young people, tonight is bring into sharp relief our need for the Lord Jesus Christ.
And we do that through a man who didn't really see the clear picture of Christ. He saw him in shadow. He saw a need in the future for his people. But in Daniel chapter 9, Gabriel, who's the very same angel that announces to Mary so long later that she's going to give birth to the Messiah who will take care of the sins of the nation, it's that same angel who shows up and interrupts Daniel's prayer, a prayer that's a total confession of sin, telling God he needs God's forgiveness. The people do, the land does, the sanctuary does in Daniel chapter 9. So what we want to do is just look at the two parts of this amazing chapter in what's revealed to Daniel. The first part of the chapter is obviously his prayer. And that prayer gets interrupted, obviously, in verse 20. So there's two parts to this whole story in Daniel chapter 9, and you cannot separate them. The first part is his prayer, and then he's interrupted, verse 20. Look what it says. And I was always speaking, praying, and confessing my sin... And the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my supplication before Yahweh, my God, for the holy mountain of my God. Yes, and he kind of makes this really emphatic, right? He's, he's telling this in retrospect, the story that happened to him. He says, right when I was in the middle of my prayer and pouring out my heart and my supplication, not for me only, but for my people. Yes, while I was speaking in my prayer, or in prayer, the man Gabriel, who had seen whom I had seen in the vision at the beginning, being caused to fly swiftly, reached me about the time of the evening offering. And what happens from this point forward, young people, is the answer to Daniel's prayer. And you might think, well, that's weird because Daniel's praying for forgiveness of the sins of Israel and the sins of the people and all of these kind of hardships that they've been through. He confesses that it's because of their sin. And Gabriel comes and says to Daniel, and this is the big picture of the chapter, Daniel, you have no idea what you're asking for, and how it will be fulfilled. Because what Daniel is told in this chapter, young people, as we begin to pick it apart and feel the, the, the strength of the message, is this. Daniel is told that the sins that he bears, and you might think of Daniel as a, sort of a, a pretty godly man, but he confesses his own sins in relation and with the sins of his people. Daniel's told the answer to your sins, Daniel, and the sins of Israel is still 490 years away, over 490 years away. And that's where the prophecy comes in. We call it in verse 24, the 70 weeks prophecy. Now that's what we want to do tonight. We want to look at how his prayer is related to this prophecy, young people. And it has all of the power to convince us that the Bible is amazingly true, but it goes well beyond that. And tonight, we're going to see that God is not only in control of world events, like you've seen in the last study. He's not only in control of the things going on in Afghanistan, as hard as that is for our brothers and sisters to grapple with at the moment there, or who have fled there. Not only is God control, in control of Russia and America, not only is he in control of all the leaders of the world, the real message that comes out of here for Daniel and for you tonight is that he is in control of the sins that sometimes overwhelm your life. And that's what Daniel is going to powerfully see. And what I want you to do this evening, young people, is to go home tonight 
not only thinking about fulfilled Bible prophecy and prophecy sure to be fulfilled shortly, but I want you to realize that God told Daniel so long ago that your sins are totally in God's control. Let's see how that works out in the life of Daniel. Come to chapter 9, verse 1. I want to briefly tonight paint a picture of the attitude that Daniel has in his prayer. We're not going to go through it verse by verse. We're not going to dissect it, but I want to show you some principles that come out of his prayer. And I want you to think about your own prayer and your own sins and your attitude towards sin. Daniel chapter 9, we find this. In the first year of Darius, the son of Ahasuerus of the lineage of the Medes, who was made king over the realm of the Chaldeans, in the first year of his reign, I, Daniel, understood by the books the number of the years specified by the word of the Lord through Jeremiah the prophet, that he would accomplish 70 years of, in the desolations of Jerusalem. Now, Make sure you get the context of Daniel chapter 9. Daniel is a Bible student. And by that, as you will quickly see, that is not an academic term. Daniel is a Bible student in the sense of wanting to know what God says and what God wants of him and what God will do and to align his life with that. Daniel is not studying the, the dates of Bible prophecy merely for clever academic interest, is he? The dates of Bible prophecy and the 70 years described by Jeremiah the prophet, and Daniel was going back over those scrolls and the books, looking and trying to figure out how it aligned and where he sat, and he suddenly realized, and he knew that he was right at the end of the 70 years captivity that Jeremiah had spoken about. And the first thing Jeremiah does, sorry, the first thing Daniel does after studying Bible prophecy is he throws himself on his face and spreads his hand out to his God in prayer because of what the prophecy means for him and his people. I want you to be impressed by that, young people, that Daniel was a serious Bible student. It's true, isn't it? When we think about it, and we're doing it through the course of Daniel off and on as the prophecies arise through the book, it's true that a huge part of the Bible is made up of prophecy, a massive percentage of it. And you sort of think, well, then there must be a sense in which God is intending us to read that prophecy, he's preserved it for us, and to study it carefully. But the study has to bring us to our knees in realizing that God is in control in realizing that God has got a purpose and a plan, and in realizing that God wants us part of that purpose and plan. And that's what happens when we study the prophets, both Old and in New Testament, especially the book of Revelation. It has the power to convict you and me of righteousness, of following God, of realizing that this world is passing by, it's nothing. And God's got a total plan according to strict guidelines and dates that he's set down, especially told to us in the book of Daniel and the book of Revelation. And it's all happening. And that brings us to our knees, realizing that we need God and that he's the one that can also can take control of our personal lives and sins.
And so Daniel starts off his prayer in verse four, and it's beautiful. Look, look at this prayer. And I prayed to Yahweh, my God. And the first thing we know about this prayer is ultimately, this is a prayer of confession. And we want to talk about what that means for us in a moment. But just get a little bit of a taste of his reverence and attitude towards God. O Lord, great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and mercy with those who love him and with those who keep his commandments, we have sinned. And you know, those words we won't unpack tonight are full of rich meaning of those who have gone before. Moses speaks of words like that, and Daniel's drawing on those words. Solomon, in the dedication of the temple, significantly, the dedication of the temple in 1 Kings 8, uses those words. And here Daniel, concerned about the destruction of the temple, and hopefully God's soon renewal of it as the 70 years come to a close, hearkens back to all those faithful prayers. But young people, just reflect tonight on your own prayers as you love the example of Daniel, as you love his passion and his spirit. I want you to love his prayer and his attitude in prayer. This is a careful, sincere prayer. It's highly reverent of God. And not just in the wording, but the actual feeling and sentiment that you can see here. That's the key. And he appeals to what God has promised and said in the past. This is Daniel's example, and we love it. Do you know, as you go through this prayer, it's pointed out, the most frequent thing that's kind of pointed out in this prayer is the word we in verse 5. And of course, if you don't have that highlighted or something to make it stand out, it's crucial to the sense of this entire prayer. All the way through this prayer, Daniel associates himself with the people even though when we look at the life of Daniel, there's nothing to think that he should be aligned with the people. So why is it we have sinned? Why is it my sins and the sins of my people? This is Daniel the prophet, the beloved of God that we're talking about. And so here's what we find, young people, when we look at the spirit of Daniel, which we love and we want to follow. In Daniel's prayer, he never, although he could have, he never blames others for his situation. Nowhere in this prayer does Daniel condemn Israel and stand back apart from them as if he's not part of Israel. He never makes himself better than others in this prayer. That's not his attitude. Do you know, young people, that is a crucial attitude to bring to suburban young people's. Fundamental to all that we do here is the fact that we are united as young people. Some struggling more than others, absolutely. Some at different stages in their life, being able to provide leadership and godly direction, and others, which might be you at another stage in your life, needing to follow and to be inspired by and strengthened by those examples. But never, ever, young people, see yourself as something apart from the young people of the brotherhood. Something different from suburban. Something slightly apart, maybe slightly better, 
You are all part, and so, this is obviously a lesson to the entire brotherhood, right? But we're young people and we're speaking in, in young people's sort of context. This is true for me in ecclesial life. It's true for our ecclesias here in Adelaide. It's a true statement, attitude, and feeling for the brotherhood worldwide. We are in this together. We suffer together. When part of the body suffers, we feel it and we want to help. We want to empathize. We want to care. We want to build up. We want to be a Daniel. That's so important, young people. And this is the spirit of the man who God greatly loves, greatly loves. And the angel came and just told him that point blank. You are greatly beloved, Daniel. And it's because of these attitudes in this prayer. Daniel never demands or expects anything on the basis of who he was. He's an ordained prophet. Or, sorry, on the basis of who he was in his personal situation in Babylon. He, is, he has a high status in Babylon. He could have easily snubbed other Israelites from Babylon, from a distance, from his high elevated position. He could have done that, and he didn't. He puts him right, himself right on the ground level with the rest of the young people in his CYC. And he's there leading the way by confessing and seeing the need for reform where there was need. You see, in this prayer, young people, Daniel is acutely aware of sin. Not the sins of others, the sins collectively. And he hates sin. But all the way through this prayer, you'll find he is acutely aware of God's mercy. God is the one you come to through confession, through acknowledging that he is righteous and right in everything he does. He's the one you come to to appeal for mercy and forgiveness and help. This is the beautiful willingness of Daniel to share in the failings and the sufferings of others and not to stand apart as better, different, or in, a, in another circumstance. You know, this is interesting, young people, as you go through, there's, there's all these words for sin through this prayer. It's a pretty heavy-going prayer, right, as you, as you read through. Um, as you go, let, let's have a look at verse 7. O oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you. He's constantly elevating God to his holy and righteous position. Because when we respect that, when Daniel knows and understands and feels the righteousness of God, he's in a right place to understand the gravity of sin. And that's what we need. To respect God, to revere him, and to see he's holy and righteous helps us to highlight the gravity of sin in our own lives. And that's not a negative thing, young people. Hold that, hold that thought. Where that leads is crucially important. Oh Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to us, shamefacedness. As it is this day to the men of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem, all Israel, those near and those, those near and those far off in the countries to which you have driven them because of the unfaithfulness which, which they have committed against you. Unfaithfulness. He talks about shame. He talks about rebellion in this prayer. He talks about transgression, iniquity, and sin. All these are heavy words. You sort of think, well, where is this going? How do, how do we get out of this? 
But here's an important principle, young people, of Daniel's prayer that has spoken to me a lot. And that is this. A crucial aspect of being a young person, and a disciple for that matter, is having an acute awareness of sin. And you might think, well, that's a, that's a negative thing to dwell on. And yet, young people, we find in Scripture, it's not. Those faithful who are acutely aware of their own personal sins are those who are most acutely aware of the greatness and the profound depth of God's mercy. And this is who you find in Daniel chapter 9, the example of Daniel himself. You know, I think it's, it's worth thinking about just for a little bit. And there's, a, there's some interesting things when we look at the world around us when it comes to sin. Um, the interesting thing is there's a book, this idea of being aware, our consciousness, our consciousness of sin. In 1973, a book was written by a psychiatrist um, called Carl Menninger. And the title of the book is Whatever Became of Sin. And he says in that book, this is back in the 70s, just think about this and think about the context of the world we live in. Think about Daniel, how different he is from this. He says in the book, the very word sin, which seems to have disappeared, was once a proud word. It was once a strong word, an ominous and serious word, but the word went away, he says. It's almost disappeared. The word along with the notion, why? Don't people sin anymore? Doesn't anyone believe in sin? And you think, well, what is that talking about? But what's super interesting, young people, there's this thing in the United States, which is, in a sense, really interesting to compare to Daniel chapter 9. There's this thing in the United States that's run by the American presidents called the National Day of Prayer. Uh, Donald Trump's done it, Obama's done it, and almost all of the U.S. presidents have done it, where they get all of America, which is pretty substantial when you think about it, and they, get, they call officially the whole nation, the whole nation to a day of prayer. This first happened during the Civil War. And the Senate of the United States asked Abraham Lincoln to call for a day of prayer. Now, you just listen to the language of the Senate during the Civil War in America. This is what they wrote to Abraham Lincoln. Think of the difference today. This is what they wrote. Whereas the Senate of the United States, devoutly recognizing the supreme authority and just government of Almighty God, in all the affairs of men and of nations, has by a resolution requested the president to designate and set apart a day for national prayer and humiliation in America. Look at what the Senate says. And whereas is the duty of nations as well as men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon, and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Holy Scriptures and proven by all history, that those nations only are blessed whose God is the Lord. So at the end of this petition to Abraham Lincoln, the Senate of America says, it behoves us then to humble ourselves before the offended power, God, to confess our national sins and to pray for clemency and for forgiveness. Do you know what's really interesting, young people? The last time the word sin was used in America's National Day of Prayer was President Eisenhower in 1953. 
things have cooled off a little bit with sin, or America's got a little bit sinless since Abraham Lincoln's day and their humble plea for pardon as a nation. It's a pretty amazing thing. Barack Obama never mentioned it. He, he refers to the fact that the others prayed for sin, but Barack Obama and his national days of prayer never actually prayed for sin. And you can guess that Donald Trump didn't either. Although Donald Trump writes some pretty amazing prayers, but it's always God be with us through COVID or whatever he wrote. And God be with the American military forces. Never does he confess the sins of American people. Now, What's with that, young people? This is the sense. Society, the world around us, can lose a sense of sin. But when you lose a sense of sin, you gain a great sense of immorality. You lose your orientation and reckoning with God and your maker. The, the sentiments of the American Senate during the Civil War are far gone. They revered the God of Jacob. And they honored the Holy One. That's how they referred to him. And yet that's all gone, young people. And you know, it's interesting that in religion itself, people have noted the same thing in Protestant churches. I just want you to think about this in relation to Daniel. C.S. Lewis wrote, the barrier I have met in his preaching and evangelizing as a, as a, even, as a preacher, the barrier I've met is that almost the total absent from the minds of my audience of any sense of sin. Interestingly, a, a lady wrote a book in 1995 when she analyzed a whole bunch of Protestant sermons on the parable of the prodigal son. And she says, we should not be surprised to find that communicating notions of sin poses difficulties for many of the pastors. As we've seen here, a closer examination of the sermon suggests the many ways in which the concept of sin has been accommodated to fit secular sensibilities. In other words, this young people... The concept of sin has been eroded and almost lost in society, and it's happening in the churches too. And yet, when you come back to Daniel chapter 9, it is the major focus of his prayer. Why is that powerful? Well, young people, if we begin to minimize sin or push it aside, our awareness of it and our hatred of it in our life, then we soon become far from God. So the reason why God, that Daniel is so greatly beloved young people is because he was so aware of his sin and he dumped it before God. Sometimes it's easy, if you're like me, to minimize sin in your life. Daniel did not. He laid it flat out before God. Sometimes, if you're like me, it's easy to just not think or, or mention our sins. You know what it's like if you've committed a sin and you feel bad about it, but you never really get around to praying for it. And eventually, the shock or the disappointment with yourself wears off. And in the end, you move on and, and maybe fall into that trap again. And what can happen is that sin's never really fully brought to light. Never really fully brought to God. We just kind of minimize it and it kind of goes away. And the feeling of uncomfortableness disappears with time. Daniel says to us as young people, no. The way to reckon with sin in your life is to be so aware of it and to bring it to God. The idea here is confession of sin, young people, to confess our sins. And I want you to think about it, how important this concept is. And I want you to think in the light of the example of Daniel, 
how often you do this. When was the last time you put all the distractions aside, got down on your knees, and put all your sins before God? When did you last do that? I mean, seriously, in the, in the attitude, in the reverence, and in the profound thinking that Daniel does. You see, if you're like me, and you probably are, it's so easy to deal with sin when we just say a quick prayer and say, oh, Lord, I've failed again, I've stuffed up again, please forgive me, and, and I was wrong, that was bad, and it's over and you move on to something else, maybe praying for the kingdom to come, great. But young people, when you stop and you, and take this the right way, when you dwell on your sins and put them before God in the same sense and with urgency and, and prayer and petition and supplication as Daniel does, that's an essential first step. And maybe young people, maybe you're struggling with sin more than you need to. And maybe that's because you haven't actually really confessed it. Really confessed it. This is what we might call a Daniel confession. Not a quick one. Not as you're dozing off to sleep, as your head's already on your pillow, but on your knees by your bed. You've got problems with sin. You've got problems with your girlfriend or your boyfriend going too far. You've got problems with your phone, your computer. You've got problems with all of those temptations. Get down on your knees and pray to God, young people, and confess your sins. Bring them into your awareness, not for the sake of leaving them there, but leaving them with God. That's what Daniel's doing. See, young people, the message that's coming out from Daniel's prayer is that you can never feel in control of sin if you're in control of them and you keep your sins to yourself. The whole message here of Israel is those sins had to be placed before God so he could take control of them. You will never do that if you keep them to yourself. You know the story of David, don't you? And you know what Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 portray of a man who kept his sins to himself. That's no way to deal with sin. The, the way to deal with sin, young people, is to confess to God. And that's all I'm going to say about sin tonight. That's all we're going to take from the message of Daniel because that's what he does. All we see him as we peer through his window. And do you know, young people... If you look at the chronology of Daniel, this could be the very prayer that put him in the lion's den. This absolutely could have been the prayer as you work through the chronology of Daniel. This could have been the very prayer that he was caught for and slapped in the lion's den in Daniel chapter 6. Because we know in Daniel chapter 6, just as one little line of evidence, that he was supplicating to God and pouring out his prayer as he prayed towards Jerusalem. That's the very sense of this prayer in Daniel chapter 9. But young people, let's be honest about our sin. Let's not fake or even minimize it in our mind and let it disappear. And you know, if we have that perspective, I, can, I feel like this is true. If you are a person that begins that habit and opens up your confessions to God and does it sincerely, you are far less likely to judge other people. It's true. 
Because if you are aware of your own sins and you're giving them over to God to control, and he might not take them away, young people, we know that. He doesn't suddenly make temptations disappear. But if you give your sins to God, you're so much more aware of your need and so less likely to judge other people. You need to believe that God is in control of sin. You know, just check out chapter 9, verse 7 again. Just an interesting footnote on Daniel's use of a word in chapter 9, verse 7. Do you see in verse 7, it says, let me just find the word. O Lord, righteousness belongs to you, but to, to us shame of face, as it is this day. The men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, and all Israel, those near and those who are, and those far off, in all the countries to which you have driven them, because of the unfaithfulness which they have committed to you. And I think I have the wrong verse. Where's the word trespass? The word trespass. Just scan your eyes down, see if you can help me out. Oh, in the King James, that's right, I was going between King James. The word trespass is the Hebrew word to cover up or to act covertly. So the interesting thing is Daniel's doing the opposite of that. He's like, let's uncover those sins, forget acting covertly, forget hiding them, forget pretending in your youth group that you're all good, but you're not. That's the idea of trespass here is to cover up your own sins. The, the great irony young people, for us, the great profound truth is that when we uncover our sins, God will cover them. You will never cover your own sins. So stop trespassing and open them up to God. Don't hold on to it. Don't pretend. There's no need to fake in our young people's group. Do you know, what Daniel shows us is that we need to align and we can align our petition with God's purpose. It's not just what Daniel wanted, right? He keeps coming back to this idea that God's holy. He wants his name to be centered back in Jerusalem and on his people and on his land. Daniel's whole prayer is aligned with wanting God's purpose to continue. And in that context, he pours out his sin and the sins of the people. It's a deep desire to see God as right and he hates sin. I wonder, young people, over the last couple weeks, whether our life demonstrates one who does truly hate sin or whether we've become blindly unaware of sin in our life. Let's refocus on that because what this brings us to, young people, is the mercy of God. Daniel keeps calling out for God's mercy. And here we are in Daniel chapter 9, Verse 19, here's the conclusion of his prayer. I don't know if you've ever yelled out to God before in your own personal prayer, ever cried out because things have been so hard. But here's verse 19. Oh Lord, hear. Oh Lord, forgive. Oh Lord, listen and act. Do not delay for your own sake. See, it's not about Daniel, it's about God's sake, God's glory. Do not delay for your own sake, my God. For your city and your people are called by your name. And that's the attitude of Daniel. And so young people, the extraordinary thing happens that the angel comes to him at the time of the evening offering in verse 21. Have you ever thought about that? That's pretty odd. The time of the evening offering? Where, where is Daniel? Obviously he's in Babylon. He's nowhere near an altar or the temple. And yet... 
Daniel can tell you that the angel came at the time of the evening sacrifice, something embedded in the law of Moses, something clearly part of what the temple does. And yet he's in Babylon. And what's happening, young people, is because Daniel can't offer sacrifices and offerings anymore under the law of Moses because the temple's destroyed, he's taken that moment of the evening sacrifice and used that every day to offer his confession to God for sin. No altar, no ram, no he-goat, no bullock, none of that. But he uses that time to confess his sin to God. And Gabriel comes and says, Daniel... I want you to understand this, verse 23. At the beginning of your supplication, the command went out, and I have come to tell you, for you are greatly beloved. Therefore, consider the matter and understand this vision. Now, here we go. What I want you to be really clear on, young people, is this, right? We are going to jump into, and it's really warm in here. I don't know if anyone else is feeling that too, but I am sweating like a pig, okay? (laughs) So I hope it's not too warm in in here for you to work out what Daniel had to do at the time of the evening sacrifice. And that is, the angel said to him, listen and understand. Now, what, what Daniel is about to get, I'm honestly going to tell you from my perspective, is probably one of the most exciting prophecies in the Bible. And one of the most confirming of the truth of the Bible. And yet it's far more than that, right? It's far more than that. What does this prophecy have to do with this prayer? Well, first of all, we sort of want to look at the prophecy. But before we do, I want you to be impressed by this. If you claim to follow Jesus, and you love Jesus, if you do, you will be very interested in not only Bible prophecy, but Bible dates. Jesus is all over dates and Bible prophecy. He's not just the Jesus as sometimes he's portrayed by the churches around us. Jesus is completely interested in Bible prophecy and timelines, as was Daniel. And he refers to Daniel. He says in Matthew 24, when you see the abomination of desolation, which Daniel spoke about, and then he says, if you read that, try and understand. He's referring to Daniel chapter 9 when Gabriel says, I want you to understand this. When you go back to Daniel, that's what Daniel was doing, right? He was reading Jeremiah the prophet and trying to understand the time period. So when we do this, I want you to sort of gear up if we can. And we want to pick apart the 70-week prophecy, which is what Gabriel gives to him. This is the spirit of Daniel. This is the spirit of Jesus. So this is what he says, right? He says, 70 weeks are determined for your people and for your holy city, right? Now, whatever this 70 weeks is, it has six purposes, okay? And you don't have to write all this down because I can give you the slides. But the 70 weeks prophecy has six purposes, It's to end transgression. Oh, that totally relates to Daniel's prayer, right? Because that's what he's all worried about is the transgression and sin of his people. So the 70-week prophecy is going to end transgression. It's going to make an end of sins. It's going to make reconciliation or covering for iniquity. Perfect. That's what we've been talking about. To bring in everlasting righteousness. Fifth, it's going to seal up the vision of the prophecy. And number six, it's going to be for the anointing of the most holy. That's what this prophecy is all about in verse 24. Now, what are we talking about with 70 weeks? Well, young people, there is two verses in particular in the Bible, Numbers 14, 34, and Ezekiel chapter 4, verse 6, that show you really clearly that a principle of Bible prophecy is that we can take one day for one year. Now, 
if you just stand back and think, should we take 70 weeks literally? Nothing happened in 70 weeks after Daniel's kind of um, situation here. 70 weeks is not a long time. But if you take this as 77s, which is 70 weeks or 70 weeks of days, you end up with a day for a year principle that gives you, well, what's 70 times 7? 490, right? So you actually have 490 years using the day for a year principle. And, and in 490 years, from the start point of this prophecy, which we'll look at, it's going to do all six of these things. 490 years from the start of this prophecy. And we're told when it starts. All right. So what I want to do is have a look at who this is really about. The first thing I want you to notice is the subject of this prophecy. The 70 weeks is talking about the Messiah, the Prince. Look at chapter 9, verse 25. There is a character mentioned here, and he's called Messiah, the Prince, in verse 25. He's also referred to as the Prince in verse 26. Right? That's worth highlighting in your Bible or just being really clear on. Whatever this 490 years is about, the prime subject of it is Messiah the Prince. Now we all know who the Messiah is. It's Jesus. There is no other Messiah. The word Prince here is the idea of ruler or commander. It's used of the kings of Israel. And it's only once in Isaiah. You can look that up on your own. It's a beautiful little verse. And do you know what's really interesting? It's never used in Daniel except for here in the 70 weeks prophecy and in Daniel chapter 11, verse 22, referring to exactly the same person, Jesus Christ. All the other words for prince in Daniel are some other word. This is special. This is a special person, and it's the Messiah. Now, ready? I'm going to take you through, to me, the most logical way to read the 70 weeks prophecy. It starts in verse 25 and goes through verse 26 and 27. Here we go. First of all, the 70-week prophecy is broken into three sections, right? Oh, I can walk away from this. Nice. Okay. We're to, oh, no, let me read it first. Okay. Come back to verse 25. Just so you know, I'm not making this up. Look at verse 25. Know therefore and understand. So let's do it. We got to hang on to this. This is brilliant. That from the going forth of the command to restore and build Jerusalem until Messiah the Prince, there shall be seven weeks and... 62 weeks and the street will be built again and the wall even in troublesome times. Now hold on. If you add up 62 and 7, what does that add up to? How many weeks? 62, 63, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9. 69 weeks. I thought this was a 70-week prophecy. And it is. There's one more week and it's referred to in verse 27. Then he shall confirm a covenant with many for one week. So the 70-week prophecy, this is awesome, is broken up into three sections. There's seven weeks, that's 49 days, so 49 years. There's 62 weeks, which is 434 days, 434 years. And then there's one week at the end. And we're also told that something happens in the middle of that final week. Do you see that? Verse 27, for one week but in the middle of the week. So here we go. We've got seven years, or seven weeks, 62 weeks, one week, and that one week is divided into three and a half days and three and a half days in the middle of the week. Does that make sense? All right, let me show you a picture of it. 
This is what it looks like. So here's our 70 week, or seven weeks, 62 weeks. There's a one week and something happens in the midst of it. Oh, this is incredible, young people. I want to show you how good this is. Verse 25 tells us what's going to happen in the first seven weeks. It says the streets are going to be built and the wall in troublesome times. When was the wall built? Who built the wall? <laughs> yes, thanks. Okay, good. Was it easy days? Okay, it's pretty clear, right? So he says there's going to be a command and the first seven weeks are going to be troublesome times when the wall's built. So that's the first seven weeks of 49 years. This is the time of Ezra and Nehemiah. Then it says there's going to be 62 weeks. What's going to happen in the 62 weeks, the massive stretch of time? The answer, nothing. Zip. It's a period of total waiting. Nothing happens for the people of God. They're just counting out 62 weeks or 434 years, according to the prophecy. But what the prophecy goes on to say in the next two verses, after verse 25, is that there's two things that will happen in the final week and after. During the one week, Messiah will confirm the covenant. And then after the one week, Messiah will destroy the temple. Right? Now, let's see this little bit here. I want to show you, let's zoom in, because verse 26 and 27 explain what happens after the 62-week period, that whole period of nothing. Right? So here's verse 26 and 27. And I want you to understand, we're doing a Daniel, right? He had to work this out too. This is, he did it thousands of years ago. We're just trying to do it in 2021 in Enfield Ecclesial Hall, right? Here we go. Verse 26 says, Messiah shall be cut off. The Hebrew word in your Bible for cut off means to destroy or to make a covenant, but not for himself. And then it says, and the people of the prince, that special word, shall come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. So first, here's the, the, the bare basics of Daniel's 70-week prophecy. The Messiah will come at the end of the 62 weeks, and he's going to be cut off. And he's going to make a covenant. And after that, he will come and absolutely obliterate Jerusalem and the temple. Right? Now, verse 27 tells you exactly the same stuff in slightly different detail. So 27 goes back over those two events again. What I mean is he shall come and confirm, Hebrews strengthen a covenant, that fits, right? Cut off is the idea of a covenant, with many for one week. So that's what happens in the one week. But in the middle of the week, he shall bring an end to sacrifice and offering. So in the middle of that week, he's going to be cut off or bring an end to sacrifice and offering. And of course, after that one week, on the wing of the abomination shall be one who makes desolate, even until the consummation which is determined is poured out on the desolator. What on earth? What is that talking about? Here's what it's talking about. I want to show you how cool this is. Here's how the 70 weeks works out. And I'm going to prove to you the starting point because that's the big question. Like, how do we know when it starts? We've got 49 years of troublesome times. That's Ezra and Nehemiah. After that, we have 62 weeks of waiting in between the Testaments. And if you add, our starting point is going to be 458 BC. And I'm going to show you that in a second. Well, let's do that. How do we know that the 70-week prophecy starts at 458 BC? Daniel's told by Gabriel 
from the going out of the command to restore and rebuild, 70 weeks are determined. Now here we go. We could, there's a number of decrees that are given by the Persian kings to go back and actually restore. Which one makes the most sense? And I am absolutely 100% convinced that it's that it's Ezra chapter 7. You check this out. I want to come to Ezra chapter 7. And I'm just speeding up a bit because I don't want to go too over time, but this, this all comes back to Daniel's prayer. This is not completely unrelated. It is absolutely fantastic. I think we need the AC on. I'm starting to sweat even more. Wow. Wow. Okay. <laughs> Daniel, no, Ezra, sorry. Ezra chapter 7. Okay. He is in the year or the reign of Artaxerxes, chapter 1. And we are looking for a decree to go back and repair and rebuild, right? That's when the 70 weeks prophecy starts. That's what we're told. So here we are in Ezra 7 verse 1. It's the reign of Artaxerxes, king of Persia. We are told on Wikipedia, I got some. I'm just going to pour it on my head. <laughs> mm. Thanks, James. Nice. Okay. We are told by Wikipedia, and I'm just going for Wikipedia because it's the common consensus. Although at school I tell you not to use Wikipedia, but that's right. Wikipedia says Artaxerxes I, this king, reigns from 465 to 424. Ezra is here in his reign. And we are told in verse 8 of Ezra, Ezra came to Jerusalem in the fifth month, which was the seventh year of the king. That brings us to 458 BC. And in that year, Artaxerxes wrote Ezra a letter and he said this, verse 12. Artaxerxes, king of kings, Ezra the priest, scribe of the law of God of heaven, which is crazy that a Persian king saying that, perfect peace and so, so on. Let's get to the point. I issue a decree that all those of the people of Israel and the priests and Levites in my realm who volunteer to go up to Jerusalem, they go with you. Now, the really cool thing is, Artaxerxes writes this decree. The temple is already underway, but this decree is special because he gives heaps of cash to Ezra. This is a decree, not just a nice little letter, go ahead and do it. And he says, go back and fire up the law of God in the temple and in that city. Get it absolutely going. So, when Ezra reflects on this in his prayer, he refers to it in verse 9 of chapter 9 and says, we've been given mercy by the kings of Persia to go back and repair and rebuild. Now, young people, I am absolutely convinced this is the date intended by the start of the 70-week prophecy. It is Ezra being told by Artaxerxes in 458 BCE to go back and fire up the temple with the law of God. He does it in the seventh year of Artaxerxes. Interestingly, sevens. Artaxerxes in the letter sends him with seven counselors and seven times Artaxerxes in that letter says, go back to the house of God. Seventh year, seven counselors, seven times he talks about the house of God. 70 week prophecy? I think so, right? Now there's something else that's really important. Daniel gets to, Jer to Jerusalem in that year of the 70-week prophecy, and he finds it a total mess. And he gets down on his knees in Ezra chapter 9, and listen to this, and he prays to the God of heaven in Ezra chapter 9, exactly echoing Daniel's prayer in chapter 9, just before Daniel got the 70-week prophecy. And do you know what time of day Ezra was praying? 
We are told he was praying at the time of the evening sacrifice. That's exactly when Daniel received the 70-week prophecy. That's an Ezra. By the way, all these things I'm going to give you on a handout, a Bible insert, um, after. So don't scribble it all down. Now, that is fantastic, young people. This is the start of the 70-week prophecy. The timing and the theme of Ezra's prayer in that year is identical to Daniel's prayer. And I can, I'll give you these notes later. You can kind of pour over it. Ezra 9 is a total echo of Ezra chapter, uh, of Daniel chapter 9. He goes all the way through that. Now, let's just take back to our little thing, right? If you add on 49 years, takes you to 49, the start of nothing, okay? All the way through here. If you add 434 years, takes you to 8026. What happened at 8026? Well, it's, well, I'm going to show you, okay? It's almost certain that this is when Jesus was baptized and started his ministry. You think that actually means that in this final week, it goes from Jesus' baptism to AD 33. What happened in AD 33? Don't worry about that yet. What happened in the middle of the week? Three and a half years after Jesus' baptism and ministry, what happened? The Messiah was cut off. That's exactly what the 70-week prophecy said all the way back in Daniel chapter 9. In the midst of the week, he will be cut off and he will establish a covenant for the people. Now you might think, was Jesus really crucified in AD 30? Let's go to Wikipedia, right? (laughs) Think about this, young people. I know that sounds sketchy, but if we're going for the consensus view, no one's going no one's gonna to say everyone's nailed the date. Dates and chronologies, as you guys know, are kind of tricky and whatever. But let's just go with this. Scholars have provided estimates of the range from 8030 to 33 AD. Hey, we are seriously close. However, one expert says the year 8030 is apparently in the, posi- in the opinion of the majority of contemporary scholars as well, far and away the most likely date of the crucifixion of Jesus. So 49 years plus 343 plus three and a half takes you right to the year of Jesus' crucifixion. Obviously, that's what's intended, young people. There's no doubt about it. And Daniel was being told by the angel Gabriel, this is completely in God's control. And Daniel, if you're worried about the sins of your people, you've got to still... You've just been through 70 years of captivity. You've got another 77s to go until the problem of sin is totally dealt with. That is awesome. Wait, so what happened in AD 33? Now, before you answer that question, what happened in that one week? Come back to Daniel chapter 9. To answer this question, we want to know what else Daniel was told about that week? Are you happy if I just round this off? Because the temperature's dropping, feeling a little bit better. Yeah, okay, good. Is that all right? Hosts, just a little bit longer? We're gonna finish this off. Yes, thanks, Trev. Okay, so here we go, right? We are told what's gonna happen in that final week, right? Daniel chapter nine, verse 27 says this. Ready, careful reading. This is what Daniel had to do. Then he shall confirm, and if you've got a little pencil in your margin, 
or wait, your pencil's probably not in your margin, but if you've got a pencil, write in your margin, the word for confirm in Hebrew is to strengthen. Strengthen. The word for confirm is to strengthen. So listen to this. He shall strengthen a covenant with many for one week. So what's happening in this one week is a strengthening of the covenant. Now, Jesus is baptized. He starts bringing in that covenant. He gets cut off, which confirms that covenant, nails it to the cross, right? 8033. This is so cool. Some things are sketchy to date in the New Testament, but the death of Stephen is almost certainly AD 33. And we can build that on the timelines and the chronologies of the Apostle Paul, which are really accurate to do. Now, what on earth does Stephen have to do with the 70-week prophecy, young people? And how is he the end of the week that goes about strengthening the new covenant? What did Stephen do? You guys tell me. I'll repeat it for those online. He looked after the widows and the fathers. He was... Brilliant at looking after other people. Give me some more. He prayed for forgiveness for others. Who did he pray for forgiveness for? Those people, the Jews, Israel. That's what Daniel's doing in Daniel chapter 9. Excellent. What else is significant about Stephen? Was not afraid to stand up for what he believed. Good. What did he teach? Okay, go to Acts chapter 7. This is incredible. Okay? Acts chapter 7. Is this the end of the 70-week prophecy? 100 bazillion percent sure. Oh, no, that's ridiculous. But I feel like it's true. Okay? Well, anyway. I want you to get the vibe of this. This is incredible stuff. There's few things that are this exact. Stephen stands up. And we're told in chapter 6, just before chapter 7, we're told in chapter 6 that he was so persuasive that people could not resist him. This, this, is, what, this is what happens with Stephen. He's so persuasive that people could not resist him. And do you know what happens in chapter 6? They get false accusations. Listen to this. This is beautiful. They get false witnesses to rise up against Stephen and accuse him falsely. And do you know what they say? Listen to this, verse 13. They set up false witnesses who said, this introduces his speech, this man does not cease to speak blasphemous words against this place. See, the focus is the temple, just like Daniel and Ezra, and the law, Daniel and Ezra. For we have heard him say, listen to this, this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, and change the customs which Moses gave us. Do you know what's great, young people? They had no idea how true their lies were. Because that's exactly what Daniel's 70-week prophecy said would happen. Jesus is going to come and destroy this place and change the customs of Moses and the sacrifices and offerings. It's awesome. And... In comes Stephen, and he gives this amazing speech that the Jews need to hear. The temple is over. God does not dwell in places made by hands. The temple system is gone. There's a new covenant in place. And do you know what's fantastic, young people? Stephen, at the end of his speech, 
sees heaven open, and he is the very first person to see the risen Lord Jesus standing on the right hand of God as the Son of God in heaven. And he sees him in his full manifestation of glory. This is a pivotal, monumental moment for the, gov- for the preaching of the gospel and the covenant. And the Jews could not resist his teaching. This nails it in the coffin. The, mo- the law of Moses and the temple are gone. It's all through Christ. Sins will not be covered to the temple and sacrifices. They will be covered by the Lord Jesus Christ. And you know, Stephen speaks directly to the Lord and asks the Lord to forgive the people for their sins in the spirit of Daniel. But now it can happen because of the new covenant. So this is AD 70, right? After this covenant is confirmed for one week, we're told that the desolator will come. That's Rome. And he's going to destroy Jerusalem. The final thing I want you to just take away from this in terms of the prophecy young people is we are told that the people who are going to come to destroy Jerusalem are the people of the prince. Quickly look at Daniel chapter 9. Go back to verse 26. I just want you to be impressed by this. Verse 26 says the Messiah is going to be cut off. And then he says, the people of this prince will come and destroy the city and the sanctuary. That happened in AD 70. Who's the prince? Jesus. Who's the people of the prince? In Daniel chapter 9. Pardon? No. Because, no, good guess, but no. Because Jesus is coming to destroy with the people. He's got people with him to come and destroy the temple and the Jewish nation. The answer to the the question there is that the people of the prince are the Roman legions. And they come sweeping in and absolutely destroy that city. And do you know who's controlling the Roman legions in 80, 70 young people? It's Jesus. He's been given all power and authority. And finally, he's been cut off. He's confirmed the covenant. And later he comes in 8070 and obliterates the temple and the sacrificial system. And he uses his special people Rome, the Roman legions. You can prove that from the New Testament multiple different ways. Jesus was in charge of that battle and the Roman legions were his people to execute judgment on the mosaic system set up by the Jewish leaders. So if you go back to the six things, young people, just squidge through them. What was the purpose of the prophecy? To end the transgression This is a fulling up of the Jewish sins after 490 years. The reign of sin is over. Jesus brings in absolute victory over sin in the midst of the week. There's an end of sins from the 70-week prophecy. Yes, it deals with it. Sin offerings are over, if you take it in that sense, as well as sins in general, obliterated by the Messiah. Do you know what's so important? Jesus doesn't only destroy the temple. And he doesn't later just destroy the Roman army in Revelation. He destroys sin, young people. That's the point of the 70-week prophecy. This Messiah, the prince, destroys sin. He's got it. He takes control of it. And that makes reconciliation or covering for the people. Number four, he brings in an age of everlasting righteousness through faith. That's the 490 years. He sealed up the vision and the prophecy or the prophet Christ did that. 
And he's anointed as the most holy. Jesus is the most holy, no longer needing a temple. So here's the point of the prophecy, young people. When Daniel was looking at it, he'd be assured that God was in control of everything. And there's certain hope for sin. And our position, 2021, looking back at the 70-week prophecy, we can be absolutely convinced that God is in control. His word is true. But not only that, the real picture of the 70-week prophecy in Daniel's prayer, this is the answer to sin. So why do we not confess our sin to God? Why are we holding on to it? Why are we thinking we can get over ourselves? Young people, it's time to get down on our knees and like Daniel, Ezra, and Stephen, confess our sins to God, give them to him. And that's the first step to dealing with sin. That is, give them to God. So here's the message, young people. I want you to be encouraged by the 70-week prophecy, the spirit of Daniel, and our need to confess our sins to God. Daniel was told the real solution to sin is not going to be the end of 70 years of captivity. It's going to be the end of 490 years when a new covenant is in place, when sin is eradicated, and we can be part of that through faith in Christ. Thank you.